Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. Thanks to everybody who pre-ordered my book, Outside the Wire, this week. One of the things that we're doing is that if you pre-order it now, you get a signed signature plate that I send you in the mail. And we've had a lot of people do this, and you get to personalize what it is I sign for you. Some of these notes that people want me to write in there are pretty long, and I've started working my way through them. And I'm worried that at some point I'm going to run out of time and we're going to have to change this to you just get a signature and not a personalized note. Now, I promise I'm not going to do that this week, but you should go and pre-order this week. Go to jasoncanderbook.com and let me know what you want me to write in the book because next week my hand's going to be tired and I think these are just going to be signatures like what most authors do. Now, this episode this week, I'm really excited about it. We're going to talk about the minimum wage and I want to start by telling you a story. A couple of years ago, I was at a Hardee's campaigning in Southeast Missouri. I was in the parking lot. I was talking to these guys and a couple of them worked minimum wage jobs. And I was amazed at what these guys told me. This was a rural area with huge poverty throughout the area. And these two fellows were saying to me, look, I don't want the minimum wage to go up because Rush Limbaugh tells me that it's going to make everything more expensive and I won't be able to afford anything. So we got to keep the minimum wage, even though I make it, we got to keep it right where it was. And that just broke my heart that the right wing noise machine has been so effective that it has convinced some minimum wage workers that they don't deserve a higher wage. In Missouri, we've even had Republicans come up with this bogus term they call take home pay. They say, I don't want to raise the minimum wage because I want more people to have take home pay. Well, what does that mean? What is take home pay? You ask them as a follow up question. They never tell you because it's just made up. It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. They have so many ways to try and keep the minimum wage down. And what they really mean is we want to keep poor people poor because we want wages in our state low because we think it gets businesses who don't want to pay anybody anything to come to our state. Well, I think that's wrong. And what we need is we need more folks who make minimum wage or just barely above minimum wage to get an opportunity to tell their story, to use a platform where a lot of people can hear them. That's what we're doing today. There's this guy, Terrence Wise, who I met really recently here in Kansas City. I was in an event about the fight for a $15 minimum wage, and he is a fast food worker who currently works three different fast food jobs. And when I saw him speak, he just told such an incredibly compelling story about what it's like to uh, make these kind of poverty wages and to work as hard as he does and to raise a family. 
And I just knew that you needed to hear from him because he perfectly tells the story of what it is like to experience this and how difficult it is to take on management in the fast food industry or really any others, but in his experience, the fast food industry, without being able to band together with your fellow workers. And that's really what this conversation is about. It's about what he has learned over the last few years in this fight and how he had to personally grow to be able to engage in it and what his life has been like working as hard as he does and barely being able to get by, if get by at all. So this is Terrence Wise and I talking about the importance of raising the minimum wage and the importance of workers coming together to get it done. My name is Terrence Wise and, you know, I was born and raised in Columbia, South Carolina, good old South, you know, Southern hospitality. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I've just been, uh, you know, a worker. You know, a worker my whole life. I watched my mother work hard for 30 years for a company called Hardee's, you know. Watched her get up early, you know, when they used to hand make biscuits up four in the morning, mm-hmm. going to work. And, and actually getting to go and see her work after school, see her enjoy her job, her customers enjoy her and, you know, and her just enjoy the work she does. And uh, growing up uh, with me and my two brothers and my sisters, you know, we always lived in a government housing, uh, apartment complexes and whatnot, and and just seemed to always struggle despite how hard my mother worked, you know, with me coming up in Columbia, South Carolina. And, you know, fast forwarding it, I see, you know, the same thing happening with me and my three little girls that I now raise in Kansas City, me working doubly hard. I work three jobs now at two local McDonald's and a Burger King as well. And I see myself uh, going through the same thing that my mom did, you know, working as hard as she could to support us, but never being able to get ahead, you know. So you work three jobs, two McDonald's and a Burger King. Uh, Is that, how many hours a week are you working? Oh, man, I would say it's definitely over 50 hours, between 50, 65 hours on a really busy week. And is part, I mean, I would assume part of the reason that you're working three different fast food locations is just you need that many hours. Yeah. Right? You got to be able to uh, survive and, and pay bills and keep food on the table. And it's it's not an anomaly. It's not only me. You know, it's many different uh, workers in Kansas City and across the country who have to work more than one job just to survive. Is your pay the same at all three places? Well, no, it, it's, uh, it jumps around. I make uh, $9 an hour at Burger King and $11 an hour at the two McDonald's I work as a manager. So, And, and you've been working fast food jobs since the age of, of 16. Oh, yeah. Right? And so you've got three daughters. You're engaged, right? Yep. Had a fiance who's a home health care worker. Okay. And uh, you're, how old are you now? 38. You're 38. At 35, you were legally described as having a substandard living condition at or just above the definition of homeless. Is that right? That is pretty accurate. Then what was your work schedule like? How much were you being paid per hour then? Well, I was working two jobs at that time at Pizza Hut and Burger King, and uh, wages were super low. Just that short time ago, I was making seven forty-seven at Pizza Hut and a little under $9 at Burger King. And this was just couple of years ago. And right now you said you're making $11 an hour. And those are the, those are the management positions. Mm-hmm. And then uh, not a little over nine at Burger King. I can tell you, since we've been organizing here in Kansas City and across the country, 
Uh, I've seen uh, slight increases in wages, especially around our city. You know, local Popeyes here in the city raise their wages to $10 an hour. I've seen uh, wages for managers in McDonald's, Subway, Taco Bell, many of the different companies slightly increase. Not to the 15 that we're demanding. Definitely don't have our union yet. But you can tell from the hard work and organizing that workers have been able to lift wages slightly across the city and the country. And that's including a whole bunch of workers who have not been involved in organizing. Definitely. It's just just helping other people, too, whether you know them or not. So in 2014, you were you were profiled in the New York Times for emerging as a leader in a national protest to raise the minimum wage. Uh, so tell us what Fight for 15 is, what Fast Food Forward is, and also tell us how you became a face of the labor movement. Well, I can tell you it started in uh, 2012, the Fight for 15 in a union with workers in New York City walking off the job and demanding $15 an hour in a union. Uh, Shortly after Kansas City was one of the first seven cities to join the movement, the movement now is over 300 cities participating in the fight for 15 in a union. But back in 2012, it's uh, uh, workers came into my shop. I was working at Burger King uh, right in the city, 47th and Truce, where I'm still working today. And uh, workers came in and I can remember it was a Sunday in May 2013. And a Domino's worker and a McDonald's worker, subway worker, came into my shop. And they didn't ask me at the time about 15 in a union. They, they asked me three simple questions. And, and I think all workers, regardless of where you work, would have answered the way I answered. The first question was, do I think workers deserve a living wage? And I'm like, yeah, whatever a living wage is, I'm, I'm pretty sure we all deserve it. Right. And they were like, do you think we deserve health care benefits? Like, yeah, every worker should have access to that. Do you, would you like to take a vacation or have vacation time? You know, time to spend with your family. And I'm like, yeah, these are three things I lack. Well, let me ask you, have you had a vacation in the last decade? <laughs> no, I really haven't. Can, and, uh, what's the last vacation you remember? Oh, I, I can't remember you don't have the one. last vacation. Okay, I've I was just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's uh, something that, workers should have access to. And so I answered yes to all of those questions. And then uh, the workers told me that, well, workers all across the city have been organizing. First time I'd heard that word, workers organizing, coming together to try to win these things. Would I like to join? And of of course, I said yes. And at that time, I went back and asked five of my coworkers that were working with me the same questions. So you, you immediately just started immediately organizing other people. I started organizing, and they came up and signed on to, to what would what I know now would be the fight for 15 in the union movement that I joined. That's great. Uh, what kind of stories have you heard from other workers about their experiences? I mean, kind of bring this to life for us. Well, I can tell you, working for 20 years in the fast food industry, and that before we begin organizing, uh, just like our country is now, our workplace was very divided. You know, it was divided. We would have Latino workers and white workers and black workers, and we would never see any common thread, anything that, that we sh- have in common. But working with uh, all the different groups over the years of workers, little did we know at that time that we all we're struggling to pay our bills. We all were struggling to keep food on our table. And people probably just don't talk about it. No, we didn't. And we would all point at each other. 
mm-hmm. instead of pointing up. Because last time I checked, immigrants don't set wages in this country. <laughs> I don't uh, determine whether another worker has access to health care or not. It's, uh, it's the people above us. And, uh, and just to be able to begin to organize in the city and talk with other workers and share our stories, to know that we're all in this together, we're all struggling, we're losing more and more ground each year, and we realize that it's not of our fault. It's not because we're not working hard. It's not because of something that we're not doing. It's really because we have not been coming together, you know, organizing and demanding better in the workplace. So when you say we were pointing at each other, you mean like folks were competing for hours. There yeah. was that sort of man, it, like sort of a divide and conquer by management. Yep. Yep. It's been a plan that's uh, been laid out well. And, and it's been working over not only the course of my life, it's it's been going on for generations. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I watched my mom go through the same thing, watching my generation go through it. And I definitely don't want this to be the future for my girls as well. You're... Your mom was probably making, I assume, close to minimum wage at the time. Do you? What, how would you compare your ability to raise your girls on close to minimum wage, uh, or I'm sure when you started minimum wage, versus your mom's ability uh, to raise her kids? Well, I can tell you, my mom, uh, she's a supporter of our Fight for 15 in the Union movement. She's, she's uh, actually been out with me mm-hmm. on several uh, ventures in support. And uh, it's just something she said to me. She wished that this movement was around when, when she was a, a worker at my age. She wished that uh, workers had the ability, and they always have. We, we're just exercising it now, to come together and demand better. And I think that's what uh, gives me great hope about uh, my daughter's future and what we're building in this country, because it doesn't have to be this way. And it and it's going to be on us as workers to make change, but to be in the ring, to be able to fight back against not only racism in the workplace, but uh, the economic disparities in the workplace as well. To be able to get in the ring and tell my employer face to face, I deserve better. We deserve better. It's 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 very inspirational for me. Yeah. yeah well, look, I think there's a lot of people listening to you right now who find you inspirational, and I think a lot of them are probably wondering. Why is this guy still working uh, at McDonald's and Burger King? And and that's a bit of a uh, a classist thing for people to think. But I think probably a lot of people are thinking it, and maybe they feel guilty about it. But they're thinking it right now. You know, you've been doing this twenty years. What is the answer to that? Well, I tell you, uh, I I believe, and I, and I I truly believe that all labor has dignity. Whether you're a fast food worker, whether you're a sanitation worker. Whether you work uh, downtown at a bank, all labor has dignity. And I, I enjoy my work. Sure. I enjoy the job that I do. And it's, uh, this job can be a good job. Just like auto workers of the past, those were looked at as the bad jobs mm-hmm. in this country. And those workers were able to organize, come together, and make those bad jobs good jobs. Sanitation workers, mm-hmm. we know their history and, uh, and, and the path they traveled to make their jobs union jobs and good jobs as well and there's no secret that these companies i work for mcdonald's burger king these aren't mom and pop shops these are billion dollar entities they can afford to pay their workers better give us a union give us a voice and do better but it's not going to happen because they feel like it we we've got to demand it we've got to organize and we've got to 
use our strength in numbers to make these bad jobs good jobs. Tell me about your education. Well, I, uh, actually, I, I haven't even uh, graduated from high school. I started working at 16. And I can tell you, before I started working, I was in uh, all advanced classes in middle school and high school coming up. And teachers would tell me, you, you're going to be something great. You, you, they were right, by the they, way. They, they were telling me that. You just keep staying the course and you can do anything that you want to do. And, and, and I firmly believe that. And as, as growing up, you know, going to school, still coming home to no lights, no food on the table, well, I figured, well, I had to do something. And I started working at the age of 16, you know, to uh, help out with my mom and my brothers and sisters. And uh, little did I know at the time, I became a full-time worker. That became my life. Just like everyone working hard nowadays, I worked harder and harder, ended up getting two jobs at 16, and school became an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you and I first met, I saw you speak and you told a story about when you you first marched with Fight for 15 and how you hung back because you had some fears about participating. Um, And I think your daughter, who pushed you to overcome it, uh, tell us that story if you would. Well, yeah, I can tell you it was... uh... It was the first time that uh, workers in Kansas City history had ever went on strike, fast food workers. And on that day, I can remember, uh, we staged uh, our, uh, we had our staging area that morning before the march right around the block from the Burger King I work at now. And uh, I can remember where we began to uh, march that morning. And, uh, and it was a crowd, you know, workers, my coworkers allies from all across the city, gearing up, ready for the march. And I was stomach churning, a little nervous, scared. You know, it's only natural when you're taking on the boss to be a little afraid. <laughs> and uh, I, I hid, <laughs> actually, in the bathroom and waited on the uh, rally to get started in the march and just hung back, you know, low, in the corner, in the shadows. Didn't want to be noticed, didn't want to be much of a presence. But my <laughs> my daughter, she uh she can sense when daddy's being a little chicken, and uh, she actually came to the bathroom to retrieve me. She, How old was she at the she time? She was uh, nine at the time, and she came to the door, and she knocked on the door, and she's like, "Well, dad, the march is starting. We're getting ready to march." And I'm like, uh, "Okay, hon, give me a second. I'm coming, you know." And I'm really not in the bathroom doing anything but hiding out, so. I go over and I fake flush the toilet and <laughs> wait on it to swirl all the way down. And I come out the door and I see people starting to line up for the march. And, and I get right like in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, just blending in. And uh, we had signs. You know, we always keep signs, nice signs, you mm-hmm. know, to tell us how it is. And uh, so I'm using it as a shield as we're marching towards the job. Like you're and hiding your face. Hiding the face. and. No one really knows me at that time, and no one really notices it. So many folks out that morning, but my daughter noticed. Mm-hmm. She's like, "Dad, what are you hiding for?" And I and I thought actually in that moment, you know, I thought of a lifetime in that moment. But I looked down at my daughter's face, and I can I can see she definitely wasn't afraid. She's nine years old. She's ready for the day. But I, I weighed in my mind, what am I more afraid of right now? not being able to take care of my daughters, take care of my family, or am I more afraid of my boss, my job that is uh, 
the primary reason behind the poverty that my family has to battle. And in that moment, that instance, I, I decided in my heart and mind that uh, I would no longer be afraid. I wouldn't be courageous, not only for my family, but for me. And I got to stand up and be strong for Kansas City and this country as well if workers like myself are going to get anywhere. Hiring used to be hard. You know what used to be hard? Backing up a car without a backup camera. That used to be hard. That would still be hard, but now you have a backup <laughs> camera. Yeah, but that used to be hard. Going backwards in a car, parallel parking without a backup camera. Like getting a hold of someone on the phone. Like the other day I showed True the landline in our house that's just dead and no one uses it. <laughs> and he goes, that's not a phone. That's not. Getting people to pick up a landline. That was hard. But now you can just text them. To call when ready. True says to us, just text them. That's not why we're here. We're here because it used to be hard to hire. Just like those things, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, confusing review processes. But today hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it all done. ZipRecruiter.com slash five four. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. You know, it's really hard. It's when you get used to awesome stuff like this and then they take it away. Like you get into a car that no longer has a backup camera. Me, I just shut my eyes and say, here goes nothing. And that's what I think hiring is going to be like if you try to not use ZipRecruiter any longer. Right on. <laughs> with, with results like think. that. Okay. Just like backup cameras. It's the same. It's a perfect analogy. <laughs> with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It's got to be hard to be part of a, of, a, of a walkout of your job. And then the next day, well, heck, right now, like we're, we're talking about this. Lots of people are going to listen to this and you're going to this job probably later today, right? That is correct. Uh, I mean, have you ever, one, that's got to feel uh, uncomfortable at a minimum. And two, have you ever had a supervisor or anybody say something to you about it? Well, I'm happy we live in the United States of America and, and that workers have rights in this country. The right, federal right, you know, rights to organize and mm -hmm. come together and demand better. There are rights that uh, workers before us have died so that we can uh, have the mm -hmm. right to organize and come together. And uh, that's easier said than done, you know, but workers, I know my rights and, and the power that I have when me and my other co-workers come together. I, I would not. Uh, and it's not only me, but many workers that we've, that we've demonstrated across this country and this city have had the courage to stand up and fight back. Hence the name Stand Up KC. We've uh, lived up to the, the moniker. And uh, just the, um, the, the movement teaches. You know, we're building a social movement union here. It's not your mom and dad's typical old union, how they, how they built it in that model. We know that we have to come together and mass and do big, bold, dramatic action if we're going to get change. And we got to be courageous. 
take mm-hmm. big bold risks. When we go and take a risk, when we do CD, when we're on strike, we're taking dramatic action. And it's what it's got civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Yeah. It's got to be uh, that way if we're going to make a change. And, uh, and, and, and that's what gives me hope. And that's what, I, that's what keeps me strong. So what I hear you saying is, yeah, they say stuff about it, but mm-hmm. I don't let it affect me. Not yeah. um, so the turnover rate for fast food restaurants is about 150%. And most employees move on within about a year. What changes at the corporate level do you think would help reduce the burnout and, and the human exploitation that's behind those numbers? A union. You well, give workers a union. It's a good place union. to start, right? You give workers a union. You give workers a living wage. And, uh, and you'll have happier workers. You'll have less turnover. And not only that, you give workers, especially low-wage workers, more money. We're not going to sit on it. We're not going to stash it in offshore bank accounts. <laughs> We're going to pour it into our local economy. I'm going to go buy my daughters that new pair of shoes. I'm going to go in the shops in my neighborhood that I never get to shop in now and buy nice things for my wife. We're going to go see a movie. When If we had $15 in a union, money to pour into the economy and help create jobs, not um, take away jobs or, or hurt our economy. So, it is the best explanation of demand side economics, uh, you know, which economists like to call it that. But you're just you're just literally saying, if I had more money in my pocket, I would spend it because people in my family have things that they need. Yeah, and yeah, you'd like to go see a movie, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so there's a website out there which we won't name that has a bit of a hit piece uh, about you, and they claim that you're a part of a front by union leaders pushing a fake narrative and that your life might be entirely fictional. Uh, so Terrence, what can you tell us today that would, would prove that you're not a, uh, a ghost made up of dark money and just part of a conspiracy? I see you sitting here. So I mean, I will leave here and I will go to work <laughs> tonight and I will get up and be to work tomorrow morning and tomorrow night. And uh, we know that uh, I never read the comment section or, or, many articles that are written about me because I know the struggle is real out here. I know that it's not only me, but I know hundreds of workers across this city and across the country that are going through the same things that I do. I've experienced homelessness, not homelessness while not working, while working two jobs with my three girls and my fiance who was working as well. So I've seen up close and personal uh, my story unfold across the city and many other workers. And it's uh it it's it's hard to uh to fathom, and it's really hard to talk about. So I really don't uh pay attention to what the naysayers and the negative the negative pieces about me. But it's very much real what it, what's going on in 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 our country and in my home and in my city, and it's um something that I'm fighting hard to change. The same article, if we can call it that, uh, decries the insanity, they say, of your movement. And they they claim that a shift, and this is where they try and get into some sort of policy argument, sort of. They claim that a shift for fast food workers is nearly a 100% raise and that no workers in history would have the gall to demand something like that. So I guess, Terrence, um, what I have to ask you is how dare you? I mean, how dare you demand a living wage? Well, and I I look at it, when we first started the movie, the movement uh, fifteen is not even the ceiling; it's the floor. The uh, uh, what is considered now a living wage here in Kansas City uh, for 
you know, a working family with two children and one adult is $24 an hour. That's not New York, California. That's in our city, Kansas City. And that's what uh, economists have uh, determined to be a living wage in our city. So when we demand 15, we're not even close. To $9 below a living wage. Right. So um, there goes that piece on that, uh, me demanding a living wage. And when you look at it and break down, the CEO of the company I work for makes over $9,000 an hour. Like over 100 times more than a, a floor worker at, at my store. And, uh, and wages, if you haven't been looking around, have not been going anywhere. You know, they have not been keeping up, not only on a national level, but here locally as well. So workers are losing more and more ground each year. And uh, we know that uh, not only that, these companies like McDonald's can afford, you know, to pay workers a living wage, to give us 15 in a union. And they don't have to wait on a vote. <laughs> they don't have to wait on someone to tell them that it's the right thing to do. They can do it today. Well, I think they've proven that. I mean, you made the point that just just through the movement, even without having a union yet or anything like that, like that the wages are already, now it's a penance, but they're going up yep. um, because you've, you've forced it yep. here in Kansas City. Um, so what are the next big steps uh, like for enacting change uh, on the minimum wage? And, and really, how can the rest of us help out? We need support in, in, a, in a physical way. Like, it's good to feel good about it and uh, to say I support it. And, and, but you can't support it from your couch. Yeah, you're saying do more than tweet. TV. Yes, do more than tweet and Facebook and social media. You got to get in the streets. That's where we're going we're gonna to win. And how active and and uh, hot this country is on so many issues. It's uh, so many folks taking it to the streets. We see the Parkland students recently taking it to the streets. We see teachers who are supposedly not even supposed to go have the ability to go on strike, taking it to the streets and going on strike. And uh, we know since fast food workers walked off the job in 2012, we've helped light a fire in the labor movement. And not only that, but open an eye not only to... Uh, economic inequality, but racism as well. You got to fight it on both fronts if we're truly going to be free people. But we've seen, we've seen the ability to make change and it's not been uh, on the phone or on social media, like you mentioned, but it's been in the streets from our young people to uh, our generation as well, taking it to the street. So what you're saying is you don't have to be somebody who has three jobs at, you know, two McDonald's and a Burger King uh, in order to, join the movement like you can go to a march yep you you can be a part of that yep uh and i think that's also an important point because look it's great when these big marches happen in in washington and it, and it makes a lot of news um but really i think the most effective ones are the marches that are you know in 800 cities like yeah. the other day uh because the other day there was one about um stopping the separation of families and, and it was all over the country um i think that the most powerful thing in terms of changing the laws, getting elected officials to pay attention, getting just, you know, regional managers of fast food chains to pay attention um, is showing up, you know, there is walking, you know, when, when y'all walk out of, of, of your workplace, being there with you yep. rather than just, you know, tweeting or showing up in Washington for something. So the thrust of our show is about using your platform to create change, uh, no matter how big or small somebody's platform is. 
What's your advice for how people should use their platform to make changes in the world based on your experience? Well, the most keen slogan I've ever read on any shirt, and it just stuck with me, is silence is violence. Mm. And, it, and it can mean on so many levels. So if you know of a great injustice or you, you know, you just know that something is just morally not right, not even morally, just wrong. And you and you do nothing about it. You know, you're part of the problem. If you you've got to use your voice and uh, and speak out. And I and I, and it goes from you know whether you're in a union or part of a congregation or a part of a neighborhood uh, association. If you know that it's something that's harming your community, harming children, and uh, definitely bad for your country, you got to stand up. You got to speak on it. Uh, if it's going to truly be changed, we got to come together. And uh, and you got to look in your at yourself. You know, one of the things I have this book. And one of the things I wrote in, in the book is that, um, you know, the secret to adulthood is that 99% of the time you actually know what the right thing to do is. And, you know, most of the time all you're doing is trying to decide whether to do the right thing. But we pretend, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of right answers here. But that's actually not true. Like, you become an adult and you realize you pretty much know what the right thing to do is almost all the time. And the, the him and and hawing is about whether to do it. So you've been at this for a few years now. Mm-hmm. Looking back, is there anything where you, you can say, you know what, if I knew then what I know now, I would do it differently? Hmm. Well, yeah, I can tell you what I, uh, the number one thing is uh, that I've come to learn is there is no individual solution to, to uh, a social and economic injustices that we face today. So for decades, I've gone about it alone. Mm-hmm. Going to the boss, demanding raises by myself, asking. I used to ask boss the boss questions like we used to have suggestion boxes and comment boxes at work that asked us our input about work, what we thought about food and working conditions. Those have disappeared in shops all across the country. So just back then, going at it by myself, trying to just go behind, I need a raise, mm-hmm. not we need a raise. Mm-hmm. I need better telling the boss all of my problems just to him mm-hmm. <laughs> and never seeing anything change uh, and not seeing real change in the future. I saw real change when we all marched on the boss. You know, uh, I worked with a Latino worker who I still work with at Burger King, and her name is uh, Susie. And uh, before we started organizing in 2013, you know, I'd go to work and I'd hear management talk to her, tell her to go back to Mexico. She's stupid. Mm. And me as and other workers all in the shop, we'd just turn a blind eye. We'd act like we didn't hear. But once we'd gotten a movement together, me, Susie, even the all the white workers in the shop, once we began organizing and uh, we'd hear that rhetoric at work, we, we all, well, for one instance, we heard a manager, you know, tell Susie she was stupid and she needed to go back to Mexico where she belonged. And uh, and and after we were in the movement and I would hear this, it, it pissed me off. Mm-hmm. It made me angry. And not only me, but other workers in the shop mm-hmm. as well. And we rallied. I remember it was, it was 14 of us. We only had like 18 employees at the shop, but 14 of us had a meeting. We came together. We signed a petition mm. demanding that this manager not only apologize, but 
you know, apologized to Susie and that we wanted insurances that it would not happen again. And we marched on the boss, all of us, tucked the petition in. She told us all to wait because when you gang up on the boss, now you see the fear in her eyes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we waited patiently in the lobby for her to come out and talk. Then we individually went around and told her how it made us feel. Mm -hmm. And we ended with Susie telling her how it made her feel. And uh, long story short, not only did we get an apology, but that manager was fired. Mm. And so for the first time in the history of me ever working, we were able to not only march on the boss, but get instant results from direct action. And that's just one of my, my favorite things about, you know, coming together and something I wish I knew back then, that mm -hmm. you got more power when you come together and you're not going to get anything done individually. That's a great example what how is it that so you have all these years where you you look back and you say okay i was trying to do this by myself for myself and and really every worker is, was in that situation what what does the corporation do to perpetuate that to make you feel like you're in competition with other workers what sort of things do they do to make that environment uh, exist well they uh you know they actually they just, we are so, we were, we're breaking the mold. We were so divided in the workplace. It's like the plan had already been laid out. Mm -hmm. They just sit back and, and watch us fight over the scraps. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, I can remember even one of some of my, I was not proud, but I would say 10 years ago, Mexicans are taking our jobs. They are the reasons we're not, even I was blinded, you know, by the fact. Or they are giving white workers more than black workers. It, you see, the fight was already internal. Mm -hmm. So we didn't need the boss to say, well, look, I need you and you to fight. It was already mm -hmm. built in. Mm -hmm. And uh, not until you, you know, start coming together, organizing and talking amongst each other, you see that you're not at fault with each other. But it's yeah. the people above you that set the wages, that sign our checks. And not only that. I really thought the fight for 15, I was fighting the boss. But I've come to learn in the movement that it's also people we elect into office mm -hmm. that dictate my everyday living conditions, you know. We we fasted on the steps of City Hall, downtown Kansas City, for a week. We protested, set up camps, slept out there, demanding, uh, you know, more action from our city council and our elected leaders in this city. And we were able to win a vote. You know, mm -hmm. to increase the minimum wage in Kansas City, one of 12 to 1 voted City Hall to, you know, nearly double the minimum wage, only to have the state pass legislation that stole it away from us. And and in that moment, I was like, man, it's more than just my boss that I got to worry about. I got to worry about the people we put in the office as well. So it's like workers have got some fighting to do, mm -hmm. but we're putting the gloves on. We're ready. So apparently most of us are brushing our teeth wrong and not for long enough and we're forgetting to change our brush on time. Some of us. Some of us go to the dentist twice a year like we're supposed to and follow all the other rules. I know all the rules. <laughs> I'm just I'm just real busy. Anyway, it's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. So what makes Quip so different? Well, for starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes, 
And it's got guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides, with, which my son really needs. I'm always like, okay, buddy, no, yeah, do yeah. the top. Just and, true. Yeah. <laughs> I know when to switch sides <laughs> when I'm brushing. Hey, your, your dental hygienist, she's asking on AMAs when you're coming in for. Yeah. Every time I, <laughs> I've, I'm anyway, I don't know how this became about me. Next quip subscription plans are for your health, not just your convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror. What? Yeah, that's handy. That is hygienic. And it unsticks to use, I guess, because, yeah, you don't got to set it down. Yes. I guess, to use it as a cover for hygienic travel uh, wherever you take your teeth, which you should take your teeth Most everywhere. places. Yeah. I mean, I'm no dentist, but take your teeth with you. No charger or wires means Quip is compact and light to make brushing twice daily easy. And it's at home and on the go. And anyway, it's good. And finally, everybody loves Quip. And they were on Oprah's O-List. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that can happen to a toothbrush. It's named one of Time's Best Inventions. Actually, that might be bigger. And is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Okay, that's probably the biggest thing. They are very picky. Yeah, I would think. Very high standards. Yeah, absolutely. And they talk to you while they have your finger, their fingers in your mouth, probably, <laughs> which is rough. Anyway, plus they're ba- not equipped, the ADA. Anyway, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash majority54 right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash majority54, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash majority54. We end each episode by running through a, a quick list of, of arguments that our listeners might hear from folks who who don't agree with them uh, on the issue. And people find it really helpful because as they kind of get the Fox News propaganda machine thrown back at them, they like to use what we have in this conversation, which is we, we run through a talking point and then we kind of talk about how to respond to it. So today, obviously, we're getting into uh, the minimum wage in the service industry. So so we'll jump into it. Um, the first one is, uh, you know, people say if minimum wage workers want to be paid more, they should they should switch fields or they should go back to school. With my foundation, we try and remind people that learning a skill that's actually in demand negates the whole conversation. If you can weld, if you can, if you're a plumber, if you're an electrician, if, if you're willing to learn a skill that has a pre-existing demand, then you don't have to constantly negotiate and talk about a few extra dollars in order to stay in a position that, frankly, I, I don't know how you advance in that kind of thinking. That's right. Right. So, so our philosophy is pretty simple. Um, if you have a skill and that skill is in demand, you can work where you want and you can write your own ticket. If you don't, you're going to have to hope the next negotiation works out and the next minimum wage position falls favorably in your direction. We talked about this a little before, but from your perspective, how do you answer it when someone says something like that? Well, First of all, I think low-wage workers, not only in Kansas City, but across the country, are working, you know, so hard like myself that it really isn't time to go back to school. Where does the money come from to go back to school when I'm choosing between rent and food on the table? So it's, uh, and it's, it's 64 million workers in this country that make less than 15. This is not uh, a small number. This is a... a huge swath of Americans that are that are struggling, and not all are 
just have the ability to pick up and go back to school. It's it's just not a reality that that many can mm-hmm. you know do. Yeah, I mean that's the simplest answer, right? It's just how the heck would you have done that? <laughs> you know, I mean when I think about comparing, because we talked about your your life a little bit, comparing it to mine, like you know you started working at sixteen because you had to, right, for your family, and it was two jobs, and then and you've been working ever since. You know, I asked you a few minutes ago about a vacation. You don't remember one. Whereas for me, um, even my decision to join the military is at least in part out of the privilege that I could look at that and say, yeah, I, I can afford to make less than what I could make, uh, you know, outside the military. I can afford to do that for a while because I came from a family that was comfortable. I mean, I think oftentimes it's really hard for people to see outside their own experience, but I think the way you answered that is maybe exactly the way people have to. Like you just said, like, when would I find time? And I think that's sort of it. People need to just ask the question of, okay, let's walk through what it's like. You're working this many hours. This is what you have in the bank. Um, when would you go back to school? Right. Another argument folks make, they say raising the minimum wage will simply cause the price of everything else to shift proportionally so there would be no benefit. Everyone wants their employees to make more money. Mm-hmm. But if in the restaurant industry, your labor cost is 30% and you're going to increase it from $10 to $15, right? A 50% increase. Now you're going up to 45%. And so consumers are going to have a price increase because a restaurant operator can't afford that bottom line. What do you say to folks who say like that if we pay you another dollar an hour, that uh, therefore we won't be able to afford a burger? I tell people, look around. Look at the price of a loaf of bread now compared to five years ago. Gas, uh, milk. Everything is on the rise. My rent went up $25 just last year. Everything's on the rise except our wages, if you if you look around. So every year, with wages being stagnant and price of milk, water, gas, everything on the rise, even utilities and rent, workers are losing more and more ground each year. So everything's already on the rise if, if you open your eyes and pay attention. Here's one. People say, well, why not raise the minimum wage to, say, $10 per hour instead of 15 Why not $12? Is, is 15 an arbitrary number? We should also ask them, well, if you can't live on $7, but 10 is okay, well, why not 20 if there are no bad effects? Why not $100 an hour? But you can't mandate this stuff. Tell me about why 15 Well, I can tell you, when we first demanded 15 they thought we were crazy in 2012. You know, it was no one that would even repeat that number on on a, on any airwave. But we've been able to make it. Uh, it's it's popular. You know, the demand for 15 in a union, and we know that. Uh, as I said earlier, it's not even the ceiling; it's the floor. And when you look at the wage calculator that uh, MIT has produced for every city across the country. Where Kansas City sits at on a living wage, at a little over $24 an hour, and it's higher in, in many other cities as well, we're, we're not even close to that, nationally or locally. And uh, minimum wage increases on a federal level haven't even uh, kept up over the years. So, um, you know, 15 is, is a number that, uh, that we really need right now. And uh, 10, 12... I, I'm it's workers, you know, making that now and, and still struggling. So, mm-hmm. yeah, 
I, I would say it's really easy for folk to do their homework on what a living wage looks like in, in your city, in your, your neighborhood. Yeah, I, I went shopping with a woman named Betty in uh, St. Louis. Betty um, Douglas. Yes. That's my sister. Yeah. Like yeah. I yeah, uh, just saw her the other day. And um, Betty, the SEIU arranged it where she took me grocery shopping with her so that I could get a sense for what it was like for her to budget on. And she worked, I think she worked, she works at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has for years, she's worked in every department. She's still, I think, making $9 an hour. And, uh, you know, we're going through and she's looking at um, the expiration date of things because she's explaining that, you know, if it's a little past the expiration date, I can get them to to discount it for me. She's, uh, and then we get to the register and she's, I ended up helping her with it. So she, in that case, but any other time she's having to put stuff back because she, she literally, she has them ring it up. And then if it's over the amount, I think she said she had $30 to spend on that trip. Um, she's putting stuff back. Like that's what it means to not have a living wage. Right. I, I, I can't imagine there's gotta be very few people listening to this right now who have had to go to the grocery store and calculate their costs the entire time. Um, I mean, I think that's what people need to relate to folks is that that's how it changes the experience. Yeah. Anything you want to add? I don't know. Just, uh, well, yeah, that's the plan. You know, you got to build. I think what what does everyone, whether you're black, white, gay, straight, Latino, immigrant, native born, what what do we do every day as Americans? We all get up and go to work. The majority of us get up every day and go to work. And that's a that's a that's that common thread. We are working Americans. We are the working class. And uh, until we, you know realize that and we come together you know we can get a lot done not only in and at in our workplace but in in uh the halls of governments as well if we're going to get better roads better schools you know a living wage if we're going to put an end to racism none of that happens until we we build a, a multiracial movement until we come together whether it's stand up can city fight for 15 whether you're fighting for environmental justice all of the people involved in these different campaigns and movements are workers. So we got to build power in the workplace and, uh, you know, let it translate into the, the uh, halls of government. We got to take it to the ballot box. We got to be one if we're going to change this country around and truly make America great again. <laughs> you want to plug Stand Up KC real quick? Tell people where they can find out more. StandUpKC.com. You know, we got a website. We got um. Facebook, Twitter, you know, the fight for 15 in the union. Uh, the nation's on fire right now. Get up. Get active. Get off the couch. Get in a march. Go talk to your congregations about it. Talk to people in your community about it. You know, come out and support workers. If you truly care about your community, about this country, and you want to see it live up t- and be America, then you got to be active. You got to. Join the movement. A huge Team Candor thank you to Terrence Wise for coming into the studio and having that conversation. You know, I keep thinking about the fact that Terrence and I live just a couple miles apart. We're around the same age, and yet our experiences are so different, and wages has so much to do with that. I will never forget how you came home after going grocery shopping with Betty, and 
The story of her deciding when she didn't have enough money which food she was going to put back, it, it just, you know, has a profound impact on how you view these wages and these jobs and how important it is to fight to increase the minimum wage. Yeah, it's great to be able to tell these folks' story because otherwise people just aren't going to get to hear these kind of stories. I'll tell you... Um, who's never in studio on Fox News when they're talking about this stuff, and that is minimum wage employees. They frequently have the CEOs of companies and business analysts, but never, not one time, have I seen a clip with minimum wage employees. That's that's right. Uh, Thank you all for listening to Majority 54. We now have over 4,000 reviews of the show. Uh, which is pretty amazing. So please make sure you're subscribed. Please leave a comment about the show. There are 17 episodes of this show. I mean, per episode, that's got to be a record-breaking number of reviews. That just says so much about the community that exists to support the show and to share the information and the opposition arguments and the talking points. It's just such an incredible group of people. And we know where they watch it because they send us photos. And that's so cool. I feel like we really, really get to know people. I also really like that the vast majority of those reviews are kind. Yes, very positive. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's not like... 3,000 uh, people just debating whether the yeah, show is good. if you have good. a problem, uh, you can send us a penned letter <laughs> in the mail. Don't worry about the Please iTunes store. Don't actually do that. <laughs> uh, as always, I'm on Twitter. Uh, also, if you have a problem, you probably didn't make it this far into the show. Yeah, anyway. yeah. this is this is a deep, you, deep commitment to being upset about it. Yeah, you, got, you really hate listening at this point. <laughs> and, and if so, good for you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. We're glad you're still yeah. with us. Don't send us an email. Uh, as always, I'm on Twitter at Jason Kander. Uh, and also, as always, you can send us an email, uh, hello majority54 at gmail.com to just give us advice on what you think we ought to be doing differently or let us know if there's somebody who you think really ought to be on the show. Again, I'm Jason Kander, and on behalf of my wife, Diana, and our producer, Brock Wilbur, thank you for listening to Majority 54. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.